HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a lovely sunny day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You've tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host today, Erin Fairbanks. Before we jump into our show, which I'm really excited about, uh, just a quick reminder that we are in the midst of our summer fun drive. Uh, we are looking to bring on some new members to support our work here at the Radio Network and would love to make you one of them. You can become a member very easily. Just visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that Donate tab. Uh, would love to bring you on for a household membership and send you our collectible tote bag. It's the coolest way to uh, sling your market vegetables or whatever you like to tote around. Um, so definitely check that out and uh, stay tuned for more. Um, but... Moving on to what I'm sure is going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm actually just a touch nervous, but we are joined in the studio by Maggie Gray. We're going to be talking about um, the work that she covers in her new book, Labor and the Locavar, The Making of a Comprehensive Food Ethic. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's good to be here. So um, I guess we should start by giving our, our uh, listeners a little bit of background. You are an associate professor in the Department of Poli-Sci at Adelphi, but I'm curious how you came to this particular topic. Uh, I guess graduate school studying human rights issues and politics um, and, and labor politics as well. And then what happened was I bought a house in the Hudson Valley and started to notice that there were people working in the fields that I didn't see anywhere else. Um, so I just started to ask questions. That's how I got started. And this, the work uh, that of the book it has kind of spanned over a decade of field research. Is yes. that right? Yes, more than 10 years. So I always wonder when um, some 
because I don't come from an academic background, when you're engaging in work, um, you know, t- like a decade ago, did you think, oh, yeah, this is going to be my thing for the next 10 years? No. <laughs> or um, Can you talk a little bit about kind of what you thought when you got started and how maybe that shifted as you gain more information throughout the course of your research? Sure. Um, well, I was, I guess at the heart of a lot of my work is really about trying to give voice to some voiceless populations um, where a lot of research doesn't exist and then to explore power dynamics. So in that sense, there's been definite fluidity throughout my work. I think what surprised me is just the the expansion of interest in food at, from the time I started my research. So I think I never would have anticipated that my book would become a food studies book um, in that sense. So I think it was a little bit more academically oriented around social movement type issues, um, but then it just seemed such an amazing opportunity to have a conversation with people interested in food. Yeah, and I feel like you, you know you you, you really didn't hold back um, in in really taking the kind of local food movement to, to task for some of the, these underlying assumptions. Um, and so thinking in particular about labor in the food space, I feel like it, my sense anyway, it, from our seat here at Heritage Radio is that this is a topic that people haven't really been talking about for, for that long. I mean, I think about, you know, uh, when Barry Esterbrook's book came out and I, you know, we've done some coverage here on the Restaurant Opportunity Center, but kind of looking at labor issues in the food system, especially with regards to small-scale producers, CSA producers, producers that we identify as, quote-unquote, like the good men and women of the food movement, um, there's been no one kind of lifting up that curtain. And I wonder, um, you know, how that's, like, after the book has come out, like how some of the the critique of those players has has played out for you, what the response has been, um, if people are, I don't know, kind of mad. Um, so I haven't had an opportunity to talk to too many of the mad people yet. Um, I think the people I'm hearing from and where I'm having really interesting conversations are people who are interested in food, people who belong to the Park Slope Food Co-op involved in the Brooklyn Food Coalition, people who are members of CSAs, people who work at the Green Market, um, Brooklyn Food Book Fair. Um, So I think the conversations I'm having right now are people who are really interested in food and are saying, hmm, you know, I've never really thought about that. Um, And so you said in one sense, you know, I'm taking the food movement to task, right? I think another way to really look at it is the food movement is ever developing and has played such an incredible role in educating us about food. And so, you know, things have momentum. So it makes sense that we've addressed environmental issues and we're concerned with animal rights. And I think it's good timing now to try to turn attention to the people who are actually working in the fields and working in the food processing. So people seem really excited. Um, And I think... The, the tension comes about in, well, how do I have a conversation with a farmer about this? Um, I think that's the tough part for people um, that, you know, there's no problem asking about pesticide usage. There's no problem asking about how the animals are treated and the conditions of animals. But when it comes to how they treat people, I think that maybe people consider 
pesticide use or the way animals are treated as sort of industry standards. And so they understand how industry standards develop, but now we want to do something alternative. Um, and I think when it comes to labor management, which is re- dealing with your workers, I think it's just a, a harder issue for people because you just don't want to imagine that people might be getting exploited. And I think, too, it's like there is a lot of that kind of, you know, racial tension and awkwardness kind of bound up in those conversations. And I am thinking about the I I was at the 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 2010 hearing uh, in New York State when they were talking about the Farm Worker Fair Fair Labor Act. And I remember being so struck walking into that hearing because on one side of the room was a bunch of um, robust white men in suits, and on the other side of the room was a, a, a number of people who are black and brown and like just physically much smaller. And then there's the kind of panel of legislators up front, and you're hearing all these like um, pictures of what it means to be a farmer and what it means to be a laborer, and the the tension was like. It, it was so intense, but it was also all these like like these stories and perspectives I hadn't really seen before, and I was surprised like where that dividing line fell. Um, and, and so I guess I want to back up a little bit and talk a little bit about the the Hudson Valley in particular. And and one of the things I thought you did so nicely in the book is kind of laying out some of the historical context of like how we got to where we are today and and what some of those shifts have been. And not to recount the whole book in our in our radio interview, but kind of in broad strokes, can you give us a sense of how unique or or it is the Hudson Valley in comparison to agricultural regions in different parts of the country? And and are the lessons that you've learned there things that we can extrapolate more broadly? Okay, so. Uh, The brief history lesson is when the New Deal labor legislation passed, uh, farm workers and domestic workers were excluded from some really important labor rights, the right to overtime pay, the right to collective bargaining protections, the right to a day of rest. Um, And some of that's really rooted in a history of racism because Southern legislators had so much power and these were black workers um, that that were mostly in those industries. so fast f- forward a little bit in, in New York, what happens is that there's a, a major transition that takes place uh, around World War II. Um, when you have people returning from the war and not going back to the farms, um, and then, of course, you have growing um, metropolitan areas, for, so the demand is increasing. Um, so the need for labor really shifts, and during wartime, there were supplementary labors. There were um, college students on farms. There was a, a wo- women's land army. There were some Canadian workers. We even had, um, uh, there were POW workers in western New York. Um, and then there were a lot of uh, southern black workers um, and Caribbean workers. And so they became the dominant workforce in New York in terms of migrant labor. Um, and that's unique to the um, East Coast, that that trajectory lasts well into the 1970s. Um, you know, I think we all have a picture about Cesar Chavez and know that there have been Latino workers and Chicanos in California's fields and Texas, even in states like Michigan. But the transition to a Latino workforce in New York State is is really quite recent. We're talking about 1980s. Um, and a wholesale shift has occurred from uh, African-American and Caribbean workers 
to this Latino workforce. And I think that's a really important part of understanding the labor story because what I found was you had a a declining labor market in terms of black workers, there being fewer of them. But then at the same time, you had this new immigrant workforce. And typically, that's sort of an old story that in the U.S., the new immigrants are the ones that are willing to work the hardest for the least amount of pay. Um, So I think what happens then in the Hudson Valley and in the rest of New York State is that there's this transition to a Latino workforce, and there are new dynamics that develop then since the 1980s around citizenship status, around language barriers. And a lot of that plays into the power dynamics that take place on the farms. So I, 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 what I, I want to dispel here a little bit is some of the things that I feel like I, the pushback I fear, feel like I hear from, from farmers. And, you know, in your research, you interviewed almost like, I think, 20 farmers and it was like 160 Worker, workers. Yeah. Okay. So kind of a, a really representative groups for the region, like seems like a lot. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Is that a lot? Well, it's- a lot more workers than farmers because there's so much literature on farmers, right? You can mm-hmm. pick up some magazines or plenty of reports. So I uh, wanted to do those individual interviews, but I had a lot of non-interview data on the farmers, but I didn't have that on the workers. On the workers. So one of the things I feel like you he- you hear from farmers a lot is, is you know, n- nobody else wants these jobs. Um, and... and also that, you know, people want the long hours because they're trying to make money to send back home and, you know, they don't want to, like, do other things in the community because they're just here to work. And, and so I wondered if you can kind of help us unpack some of those, uh, like, how, how do we respond or understand where, where that is, you know, not quite the case? Yeah, so, you know, if you're only making minimum wage then you certainly want to work as many hours as possible. And I think you get, you get routinized into thinking that way. And I think people from your hometown or you have family members that come up here and you're really very much in a sacrifice mode, okay? The reason that you're coming up here to work is to support your families. So certainly there's definitely truth in the matter that workers want the hours so that they can maximize that and send their money home. Um, I think it, it definitely shifts the longer workers are here. I think their attitudes start to change about how many hours they want to work. And if their families are here with them, um, it can really influence family life. And I've spoken to, you know, kids who say, I just never see my father, right? He's always working. Um, And I've certainly met farm workers who even have the one day off a week, but then they go and work somewhere else, right? So I I don't think there's any myth to dispel in that. I think that that's definitely, there's some truth in that. Um, I think... um, some of what we hear from the farm industry also is about, you know, there are times of the harvest that can be really unpredictable, right? So they don't want to be able to have to be confined by overtime pay if there's going to be a two and a half week period where every apple has to get picked. Um, and I think we might be able to sympathize with that scenario, but that's not what I found. I found workers who were doing two, three, four, or five months at a time doing 70, 80, 90-hour work weeks. So I'm sure this is not true on every farm, but, but for those workers, life can be really tough, really challenging. Um, I think the main issue for the farm industry is really about 
anything you extend to workers is going to cost the farmers more, right? And so I think the, that's really the bottom line of the entire conversation is what's it going to cost agriculture? And so just to give some perspective here, if I'm a farmer and I'm paying you minimum wage and you're working 75 hours a week, then if an overtime bill comes about, I'm, I'm really going to feel that. And it's going to be painful, right? I'm going to have to struggle a little bit. But if I'm a farmer who's already paying $9 an hour, even $10 an hour, if you're working 60 hours a week and the overtime bill came in, at the end of the day, the workers really want to know I'm making the same amount of money at the end of the day. And so I think farmers would have a lot of flexibility here to lower the minimum wage that they're paying workers in order to accommodate for the overtime pay. So in a sense, I almost feel as though farmers who are already paying $9, $10 an hour, and some are paying you know, $11, $12, they are at a competitive disadvantage. And in a way, I almost feel like overtime pay would help equalize the situation for them. Um, but I think we can also discuss workers like dairy workers. You know, I mean, there is no extreme harvest in dairy. For all intents and purposes, it's a factory job. But you have the same laws applying to those workers who, ha who can have really grueling schedules on top of just being paid minimum wage for a job. So, you know, I think that there's, I think some of the things you brought up they're, they're not there's no necessarily paradox here. I think a lot of these ideas sit comfortably next to each other. You know, that I can sit down with a worker who will tell me, you know what, I just don't like this job, and I don't like the way I'm treated, and I wish I made more money, and yeah, I've been here for six years, right? Um, so I think these things can sit next to each other. I think the main issue that I want to get a point in my book is really just to start to paint a portrait for people about what the conditions of these workers are like, how, how much they feel the power dynamic in the workplace, and how it influences them in preventing them from speaking up, preventing them to try to address um, even small issues that might come up for them. Well, I think that's the thing that resonated with me is, is trying to get a sense of like what the systemic issues are, and almost like the the culture around the, the the working conditions and the kind of labor relationship, because I think if you if you I just wonder, like for a lot of the farmers, I don't feel like you would talk to any. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm assuming that of the 18 that you talked to, none of them were identified themselves as an exploitative employer. I would guess quite the opposite. They're like, I'm working right along with my workers and like this, you know, like, so there is a little a bit of, um, for me, kind of understanding, you know, what it looks like and what your kind of role or agency is in affecting change or your responsibility is. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit and kind of what you heard. Well, sure. So think about it in perspective of here's the law. Here's what the law says. So in terms of a lot of your listeners who are interested in buying meat, for example, what the law says can be sold as meat is completely unacceptable for them, right? And so they're seeking out alternative um, food practices so that they can feel com more comfortable with their purchases. So if we look at the law that exists, 
you can talk to a farmer who says, I'm following the law, right? So by following the law, I can tell you about a dairy worker I met about a month ago who said he works six-hour shifts twice a day. So he works from 6 a.m. to noon and then from 6 p.m. to midnight. And uh, we were talking. I said, you know, it sounds like, a, sounds like sort of a rough schedule, right? How do you have a, a life around that? And he said, you know what, it's, it's not that bad because I used to work three-hour shifts. So he would work three hours on, three hours off, three hours on, three, around the clock. And he said, and that was really difficult. But that's perfectly legal, right? And so he can do that seven days a week and, and get paid minimum wage. So according to the law, that's, that's perfectly legal. But then you asked, you know, when does it become exploitation? And I think that, you know, th- the law isn't saying this is exploitation or this is not exploitation. I think it's the same thing for consumers and people interested in food to try to make a decision for themselves. What sort of conditions are they finding exploitive, right? So is it okay that workers are logging 85, 90 hours a week, um, for three months in a row, a row. Is it okay that workers, you know, they could be out there in 100-degree weather for hours at a time? Um, is it okay that if workers went and asked for a raise, that they could be fired for that and they have no opportunity to redress, right? So I think in terms of exploitation, I think we all have to make our own decisions. And I think if you're a business person, you're never going to imagine, oh, I'm running a business by exploiting my workforce, right? Because that's just, that's not something you would find personally acceptable. But if you're following the law, you know, you're following the law. And so you can feel comfortable that you're following the law. So you asked about the systemic problems. And I think Um, One of the points I try to make in the book is I'm not talking about labor abuses, right? They exist. The the really extreme scenarios, they're out there, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the, the way the law is designed, the way the dynamic exists on the farm, the way that I think a lot of farmers don't necessarily understand the power dynamic as well as maybe they could. And the way some of them really do understand the power dynamic, you know, so when workers tell me, you know, you brought up the fact that the farm industry will say that there aren't Americans who want to do this job, but the farmers I talked to were very explicit. We don't want American workers and we don't want our Latino workers to be Americanized. You know, I, I heard that several times and that even when they start learning English, that means they're not going to be as good workers. So I think that some of the structural issues are really around the way the law is designed and then the the power dynamics that exist on the farm and in general that people are so unaware of the conditions of the workers. And I think it's so easy for us to make assumptions when we know how much there are benefits to local food. I think it's easy for us to make an assumption that maybe one of the benefits is that workers are treated much better than they are in corporate industrial agriculture. But that's not an assumption you feel like we can make. I think every condition I've ever read about that exists on the corporate industrial farms, I found on Hudson Valley farms. I think the one, the one aspect that was unique is this form of paternalism that takes place, right? So the intimacy that we have by buying from local smaller farmers and that we can buy directly from them, I think that intimacy then translates in a way into the relationships they have with their workers 
And paternalism is really complex because on the one hand, it means that workers might get a level of protection, especially if they don't have documents, um, that they get benefits like food from the farm, free housing, letting family members stay on the farm, use of farm vehicles, right? These are all benefits that we might get. Um, but the flip side is that this acts as a form of labor control because as a worker, I want to keep getting those benefits. And since it's not part of the labor contract, I might feel that this is just completely dependent on my keeping my head down, not complaining about anything and just getting my work done. So I think that that paternalism, which again is really complicated. And I think a lot of farmers are extending benefits to their workers because they care about them. Um, but it does have this flip side that it acts as a form of labor control. Well, so you said earlier that, you know, consumers should be thinking about what their, you know, should be drawing those lines for themselves. And I guess I feel like more and more we're asking shoppers, consumers to be aware and know and make decisions around so much. So I'm like putting that in, on, in one space. And then in the other space, looking at kind of the letter of the law and, and what that that, that that is essentially this essentially safety net of kind of um, moral responsibility where I'm like, I'm following the law and if, it couldn't be so bad if it's the, the letter of the law. So I'm just wondering, like, how do we um, like what would success essentially like look like if, you know, everyone out in the world kind of reads your 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 book <clears throat> and becomes aware of the kind of issues that you um, lay out? kind of then what because i guess i just feel like putting it on consumers is in in the purchasing capacity is not where i might like choose a leverage point but but i don't know i mean like how do we affect change here and are there other kind of labor movements that we should be looking to um so i don't you know, I think consumers can play an important part in the puzzle. I think one route to go and that a lot of advocates in New York State have been pushing for is to change the law in New York State. Um, and it's come really close in the past to passing in the state Senate so that farm workers might have overtime protection, that they might have a right to a day of rest, meaning if they want to work the seventh day, that they would get paid time and a half for it and that they have collective bargaining protections, you know, and collective bargaining protections doesn't mean that a union's going to swoop in and suddenly you're going to have strikes. Um, it really means that workers can get together and have conversations as a collective with a boss. Um, so I think affecting change, that's one route through the law. Um, but I think the other part of it is really about consumers, right? So why do we have a thriving organic industry? Why do we have a thriving local industry? Why do we have, um, you know, grass-fed beef that's free-ranging? I think this is all because of consumer demand. And I think right now, you know, maybe it started to change, um, but the farmers I spoke to, the people who work in green markets I spoke to, Nobody has ever asked them a question about farm workers. I mean, I've, I've talked to this one guy from the farmer's market, and he said he worked at the information booth. He said you cannot even imagine the range of questions that he was asked and the detailed questions, and that in his years working there, nobody ever asked a question about labor. So I think in terms of raising consumer consciousness, it's no different than any other aspect of our food. And I think what also happens is, you know, Yes, there's a lot for consumers to be concerned with, but 
now you can go to a farmer's market and know that there's local food, right? So you don't have to be asking those questions. You know that that market exists or that there's an organic label on something. Um, so I think as consumers push for alternative foods, some of it then gets a little norm normalized in alternative food markets. Um, and I think, you know, I heard this great um, analogy that if you walked into a restaurant 15 years ago, even right here in Brooklyn, and said, you know, can you tell me where my chicken is from? That they would look at you like you had three heads. So I think that's where we are right now in terms of farm workers. So I don't think there's a solution coming about in six months or a year, right? It was a long journey to try to get attention to these other issues that we're all still working on. But I think the first part of anything is really about education. So for me, one of the main um, changes I would like to see is that people don't need to be convinced that there are farm workers in the state or that there are farm workers on local farms, that people don't need to be convinced that maybe the conditions of the farm workers aren't so great, that people have a better understanding of how the law is designed in a way that the farm workers tell me when we have a, a, a law designed to say that I'm less than other workers, now I feel like that's a, a, an invitation to treat me worse, right? Um, so I think a lot of it's just about an education campaign. And I think, you know, like consumers do with anything else, they can go do a little more research on their own. They can try to find out um, if there are farm worker efforts that they might want to support. I, I don't know of any farmers in the green markets right now who are saying, hey, we pay overtime, so come buy from us. Um, but maybe that's not far down the road if the law doesn't change. Um, so I think there are a lot of avenues. But again, I think given that there's just been almost no research on workers in the local food system, the first step's really about education. Maggie, I'm bummed that we're out of time, but I'm glad that we've started some of this conversation on the show here today. Thanks so much for being my guest. Thanks, Erin. Again, the book is Labor and Locavore, The Making of a Comprehensive Food Ethic, available wherever fine books are sold, so definitely check it out. Thanks again for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. This, like all 35 of our weekly shows, are available for free. Uh, visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org, or check us out on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.